it's all about feeling an attachment to your culture and your heritage and that's how we can empower multilingual students by celebrating their own identity their own attachment to their culture uh, celebrating the idea of being multicultural um, so if you can empower them and get this message across that it's truly a gift to be bilingual it's an amazing thing and it's to be valued Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, English language learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. In part two of our interview with Professor David Harrison, we talk more about the power of languages, the emotional connections they hold, and what educators can do to help students recognize the value of their heritage languages. Our conversation starts with a discussion around how globalization and technology can be leveraged to preserve languages and the richness they hold. To access more great resources, including some takeaways from this conversation, David Harrison's full bio, and lots more, join our ELL community by going to bit.ly slash getelresources, and there are no caps in that URL. We hope you enjoy part two of this great conversation with Professor David Harrison. I want to I want to bring up another topic that uh, I think is an interesting one because there are two kind of general sides to it. Um, although there's way more than that, but I think there when it comes to, to being a polarizing issue it has two sides, and that's technology. You talk about the role that technology plays in preserving languages, and you've done a lot of work to do that, um, and, and everything that comes with language, obviously not just the language itself. But I think to many, this may seem kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people associate with technology, associate technology with globalization, and they associate globalization with the desire to learn English and that whole idea that you just brought up of what a sad world it would be if we were just a monolingual society. Um, and, you know, people are using English to try to get ahead in an increasingly connected world. So my question for you is, doesn't doesn't that everything I just mentioned and technology, therefore, uh, sort of play devil's advocate a little bit? Doesn't that pose a threat to the language you and others are, are trying to, to to preserve? Help me understand why that's not the case. Sure, Steve. Well, I'll say, first of all, globalization is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for centuries. And there are cultures that have been negatively impacted by it. And there are cultures, including many small ones, that have thrived and that have maintained their resilience and their vibrancy while still adopting elements of technology or culture from other cultures that they want. And technology itself is not the threat to small languages or to language diversity, but rather it's the social pressures and the ideologies that it brings with it sometimes. Now, I've worked with hundreds of endangered language communities around the world and minority language communities. And the savvy communities know how, have figured out how to leverage technology to sustain their languages. This is what I call the positive side of globalization. We hear a lot about the negative side of globalization and certainly there are many, but the positive side of globalization is that a very small language spoken by only a thousand people high in the Himalayas in a remote spot. I'm thinking of Koro Aka, the language I mentioned earlier that was completely new to science when my team and I recorded it. Mm -hmm. 
they now have a global audience and a global voice. You know, if we don't know about something, we can't care about it. The Coral Aka community have recorded many really fascinating cultural videos, and they have shared these on YouTube and gotten thousands of views. They have a delegate, the Koro Aka community in India, uh, traveled halfway around the world a few years ago um, at my invitation to come to the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in Washington, D.C., where they were part of, of an exhibit that got a million people um, passing through, learning about the importance of cultural and linguistic diversity. And they were there alongside many other groups sharing their language. And so technology, there's many other examples. There's the example of the Cherokee Nation, which created a whole Microsoft Windows environment in Cherokee. There are many new apps and platforms. My talking dictionary platform, which I created uh, about a decade ago at Swarthmore College, now has more than 200 languages on it. And for many of those languages, that is the first ever presence on the internet. So they are crossing the digital divide. They are reaching potentially a global audience and they're sharing their language and culture. And so that is how uh, technology can be turned to advantage in the service of linguistic diversity. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I really appreciate you giving sort of specific um, examples there. And, and I actually want to dive in and put some names to uh, to some of these uh, topics that you're talking about, because, you know, you talked about this in your uh, keynote address um, uh, in 2019 at, at TESOL. And I, I want to bring up a couple case studies um, and see, you know, see if we can kind of unpack some of the issues that 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 educators may be facing with their students by using some of these examples. So, one that you just mentioned, I think you just referred to him. This is Bud Lane, who's the only remaining speaker of it. Is it Siletz? Am I pronouncing that right? Siletz. Siletz. I, I knew I didn't. I didn't write it phonetically. I should have. I should know better. Um, but that's a Native, Amer uh, Native American language originating in the Pacific Northwest. And he stressed. You talked about him stressing the emotional attachment of his um, of his language, um, which is not a written language. And one of the things he says is that words were never written. Uh, they, they're carried in the hearts and minds of our ancestors. How, how, you talked a little bit earlier about these emotional connections when you were talking about studying abroad. I really related to that because that's how you're learning a language. But how can we use these emotional connections like this one to help empower um, multilingual students rather than marginalize them with these deficit-based approaches that we've kind of already spoken against? Well, that's a great question, Steve. And Bud Lane, the last speaker of Siletz, a Native American language, is just one of many language warriors or language heroes that I write about in my book, The Last Speakers, The Quest to Save the World's Most Endangered Languages. And what I mean by that title is not that I'm out there saving languages, I'm just helping out. But these language warriors like Bud Lane, these language heroes are saving their own languages and we look to them for inspiration. And one of the strategies uh, Bud Lane has taken with the Siletz language first was to sit down with a linguist, uh, Greg Anderson, my colleague, and record more than 10,000 words of his language to create a talking dictionary. 
Uh, so he put his language out there on the internet. He's conducted language revitalization classes and he is inspiring a younger generation. So even though he is the only fluent speaker, he probably will not be the last speaker because there are now members of the Siletz tribal nation who are in their teens and 20s who true are not native speakers or fluent speakers of the language, but they use it on a daily basis. They send text messages in it. They use it on social media. So the language is finding renewed vitality through these young learners and speakers. And it's all about feeling an attachment to your culture and your heritage. And that's how we can empower multilingual students by celebrating their own identity, their own attachment to their culture, uh, celebrating the idea of being multicultural. So they are to be regarded as full members, right, of both the cultures to which they belong. It's not that they are lesser, lesser members of one culture or more members of another culture. They are what they, they are who they aspire to be, you know, and they should not in any way be disparaged or made to feel ashamed of uh, speaking another language with their parents and grandparents or speaking with an accent or knowing two languages. Um, so if you can empower them and get this message across that it's truly a gift to be bilingual, mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing and it's to be valued. Um, that I think will help them flourish, not only as English learners, but as fully engaged in all the cultures that they feel they belong to. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that starts from the ground up uh, in many ways with teachers doing that work. Um, and then it be hopefully becomes more widespread. Um, I also, just, just to, another point on what you just said about, uh, about Bud Lane and, 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 um, and so that's the fact that you that there are younger people uh, sending text messages in the language and using it in social media is just another example of how technology isn't always uh, you know the enemy here and in this case can help perpetuate hopefully the language. Right, you mentioned that Celeste was not a written language, and that's true. It, it is it does have an orthography now, but that's a fairly recent invention, so it can be written. But like most of the world's languages, so of the 7,000 languages in the world, the vast majority of them either make no use of, lit of writing and literacy, or they make only partial use of it or a recent phenomenon. And talk about a deficit model that's incorrect. You know, we, we're raised in literate societies, so we have a very strong bias that literacy is the norm and that if a language or a people don't have it, they're lacking something. That's why we call them illiterate, right? And we, we think of illiterate societies as being less developed and they really should hurry up and learn writing and write their language or learn to write English, but that's completely backwards. Um, people who are members of oral societies, and I've worked with many individuals who perform what seemed to me to be astonishing feats of memory. A poet uh, who can recite 10,000 lines 
know, I can't even memorize a telephone number anymore. Yeah. I have a little device that does it for me. Right. Right. <laughs> so people in oral cultures, you know, they're, it's like they're doing weightlifting with their brains all the time mm -hmm. and they can transmit and memorize astonishing bodies of knowledge that we've lost the ability to do this. So we're actually being literate. We're actually the ones operating under a deficit um, yeah. and unable to memorize, <laughs> unable to use our memories in the ways that people in oral societies do quite routinely. And so we need to stop thinking about um, oral cultures as somehow being deficient and look at them as just another manifestation of human genius alongside more literate cultures that are worse than great. It's a, that's a great point. And you used a great example. Uh, you know, I, I still, I guess I, I guess I can say now I'm old enough to remember that, uh, when I was a kid, I knew all my friends' phone numbers and could dial yep. them. And you probably and I, still I could, still remember you them. Probably could still recite phone numbers of people you were friends with in the fifth grade. hundred percent. But now you never you you don't memorize phone numbers at all, and neither do I. Right. <laughs> and so right. even in our own lifetimes, right, we can see how we've allowed our memory to atrophy and we've become totally reliant on our external brain, which could be, you know, a cell phone or some other device that remembers things for us. <laughs> and so, so that's the cost. That's the trade-off of literacy is that you lose memory ability, both in, as individuals and as a society. It's a really, it's a really great point. I liked, this is a whole conversation for another time, but I like to think that Hopefully that brain space is being used by something else, higher word thinking or something, but I suspect, I don't know. I'm like, I guess no, I'm there's no doubt. It's, there's no doubt it's being used for something, but we simply do not have what in oral societies is absolutely routine. It seems to us like almost magical that, that someone could memorize such a vast amount uh, of linguistic material, but yeah, it's and completely routine in societies. And we need to look at it as such magical. I think that's the whole, that's the whole point. I want, I want to bring up another example of one more uh, person that you referenced. Um, uh, young man, Anthony, will you pronounce his last name? So I don't, he's the speaker of Koro. Anthony Deggio. He's a speaker of the, the Koro language, which is spoken in the Himalayas in India. Yeah. And he, and so you tell us the story. He, he went to boarding school uh, where in probably in similar situations to what we see on a daily basis here in the United States, he went to boarding school and suppressed his language to conform to the new norms that he faced. I mean, this is a story that plays out every day here. Um, and this resulted in a loss of sort of cultural identity that later had to be resuscitated. I mean, I see so many parallels uh, with the, the sort of the legacy of these English only programs that have marginalized students' heritage languages. I spoke with um, somebody, Dr. Catalina Lopez, who's an educator on the border in Texas, and she, you know, was talking about how the, the legacy of those English-only programs still have a profound effect on a uh, a society and a culture down there that is a ninety percent almost um, bilingual. Uh, and people that are bilingual are still sort of suppressing their Spanish. They still look at it as secondary, um, which which was an amazing story to me. And for her to kind of come up and talk about that was really interesting. 
and it's a very similar, I think, to what we're seeing here. So it, tell us a little bit more about that and, and again, sort of what we can learn from these kinds of stories that can be applied to these educational settings that we're talking about here. We can learn a lot from listening uh, with empathy and respect to people's linguistic autobiographies. What are their experiences? What are the choices they have made? Uh, are those choices free or are they perhaps coerced? What is their sense of value, their attachment, their sentiment towards the languages that they know? And Anthony Deggio is a wonderful story. He's a young man from the Koro Aka community, this language that was new to science when my team documented it. And when I first met Anthony, he was maybe 19 or 20, he actually denied knowledge of the Koro Aka language entirely. He said, I don't, I don't speak that language. Mm. Uh, but he said, I speak English, I speak Hindi, I speak Nepali, I speak Assamese. So he was a multilingual person, he was a polyglot. But he said, I don't speak Koro Aka. And the reason I had asked him is that we were in the area documenting this language that was new to science, and he just happened to walk past us on the road, and I introduced myself. And I said, well, what language does your father and mother speak at home? He said, oh, they speak Koro Aka. Uh, what language does your elder brother speak? Oh, he speaks Koro Aka. So it turns out that he was a speaker of the language, even though he denied it at first, but he didn't have confidence to speak it. And the reason he didn't have confidence, he explained very eloquently in a clip that I played, I shared with the audience at TESOL 2019. He shared that as a young child, probably age five or so, he had been sent um, several days journey away from his village to live in a residential boarding school. And at that boarding school, he was well cared for, he was well educated. He was not forbidden from speaking his language, but he simply didn't have the opportunity to speak it. And mm -hmm. so he stopped speaking it. And he explained that after some years in the boarding school, coming back to his native village, he didn't speak his native language, Koro Aka, perfectly. He made grammatical mistakes in it, which is completely normal. But then people made fun of him and they belittled him. And so he became a little bit ashamed and not confident about his abilities. And so he eventually abandoned the language and he stopped using it. And he used the other five languages that he knows. Uh, but then after having told me this story, he very affirmatively said, we need to keep our language. And the reason we need to keep it is that the wisdom of our ancestors can only come down to us through our native tongue. And this is why we need to keep our language. So he knew that abandoning the language was not what he had wanted to do, although it was a rational decision at the time and in the circumstances he founded himself and he wanted to reclaim it so that he could tap into this ancestral wisdom. What I learned from Anthony is that it's important to listen to people, their linguistic biographies, the choices they make, and to their desires and aspirations, and then to find ways to enable those. Yeah, you know, and it, it, I mean, it goes back to, and this is a, another quote that I that I took from from one of your talks. I mean, where you say we never know the next brilliant idea is going to come from, and then combining that with this idea of the wisdom of our ancestors lives in our our language, our languages. Um, I think that's a great kind of kind of way to sort of sum this 
whole conversation up and and again kind of uh, uh, attach it to the work that that educators are doing in the field because again like that emotional attachment everything that comes with language um, is something that maybe we don't think about enough and um, one of the things I really appreciate about your work is the, it, it, obviously I think given this conversation there is so much more um, to be lost, but more importantly, so much more to gain um, with with language. Uh, and I think that's applicable, not only in the work you're doing, but in the classrooms that our listeners are working in um, every day, whether those be, uh, you know, in person or, or, or remote. So uh, given that, you know, really appreciate you taking the time. I have a couple more questions for you that I like to ask everyone um, as we wrap up. And one is, um, Go, go Let me back up one second because I you quoted me and that was my summary remark at TESOL 2019. I said that the full quote was um, no has a monopoly on human genius and we never know where the next brilliant idea is going to come from. And so if we value diversity of thought, of ideas, of ingenuity, we have to value all languages. And so that was my thought. And um, I also said to the audience at TESOL 2019, you know, you might think it odd that a specialist in endangered language would come and address a conference of ESL educators. Those would might seem to be in conflict, right? Those, the agenda of preserving endangered languages and the agenda of teaching English to students, but they're not. Those are synergistic activities and I said I myself have been an ESL teacher and I understand the important work that you're doing and you are celebrating you are creating bilingual and multilingual speakers in your classrooms and you are celebrating diversity and you are expanding their minds by adding a language to their linguistic repertoire not by taking anything away yeah, I really appreciate you going back there and adding that in. And that's, uh, you know, I, I think I think that's really important. Um, I, given the reception that you received, uh, both before your speech and after, I think most people were, I know that most people, the, everybody was really excited to hear you. But what a great way to kind of, uh, to kind of wrap that, that up, because I think that's, um, that's truly the, the important message here and the connection that we can make. Um. You mentioned your book. I, I, I want you to uh, mention it again because um, I think that that would be really uh, an interesting resource for folks to look at. What's the the name of it, and how can people find it? Absolutely. So I wrote a book um, with Oxford University Press. That's called uh, "When Languages Die: um, The Extinction of the World's Languages and the Erosion of Human Knowledge." And that is a book in which I lay out all of these incredible knowledge systems relating to plants and animals mathematics and time and space and with real of real people so i put a face on the problem of language extinction and that uh, college level academic settings and it's read, read as popular and accessible book which i might recommend really listeners of any age including and so forth is called the last speakers the languages and that was published by national geographic and in that 
files of language warriors, language activists who are working to save their languages all over the world. And I talk about the value of their work and their accomplishments and how those of us who care about language diversity can support this work. So that's called The Last Speakers, The Quest to Save the World's Most Endangered Languages. Great. And we will make sure we link to those books and the other um, videos that I've referenced throughout this conversation. Um, is there a place that people can go to learn about the work that you're doing that uh, that would be easily accessible? Absolutely. And I'd also like to mention um, the documentary film, The Linguists, uh, which uh, aired on PBS. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, got an Emmy nomination. And this film has become a staple of classrooms and it is really appealing to all ages from middle school on upward. In the film, The Linguists, we traveled all over the world, meeting some of the last speakers of the world's most endangered languages, listening to their understanding why they were important and why preserving language diversity is important. And this is available for streaming on Vimeo. So you can go to, I think, thelinguists.org, I think is a website. I'll double check that. And that's something that educators can use in the classroom if they want to bring in a positive message about language diversity uh, to their students. Again, probably from the middle school level on up. And also uh, your listeners are welcome to visit my site at talkingdictionary.org. This is where I have a collection of more than 200 injured language talking dictionaries where you can listen to words and wisdom and interesting little cultural tidbits and photographs and video clips from a great variety of the world's languages from six different continents and hundreds of different communities. That's at talkingdictionary.org. Perfect. Well, we will link to all of those things. And I would encourage uh, teachers who are working with English learners and multilingual learners to take a look at some of these, particularly as we approach the end of the school year here, it, it might be a good way to kind of send students off to the summer uh, uh, in the summer with some positive messages. Uh, everybody is familiar with kind of what happens in the summer and some of the learning loss that occurs then and, and perhaps that has occurred uh, due to the pandemic. So uh, this is a great way, I think, to kind of use that um, those positive emotional messages and inspiration um, to help students really understand uh, the value that that they're bringing and that their languages and cultures bring. So uh, I guess that's just a, a, a personal message for me. I just feel like there's a lot of uh, that can be gained um, from doing that. And having seen uh, a lot of the videos that you put out, read a lot of your work, um, I can say, you know, say for certain that uh, that it's impactful um, and really comes at it from a from a unique angle that I think is really important for people to to understand. Um, and with that, Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, thank, thank you, Steve, for all you're doing and uh, with your podcast. And, um, and I want to thank your listeners for doing the incredibly important work of multilingual education. Yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's a great, um, a gr a great opportunity to collaborate uh, here. And I really appreciate you taking the time um, to come on and, 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 and tell your story. It's, it's really, really inspirational. Um, and so I appreciate it. And I'm sure the, the listeners do too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. 
where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.